Aloha and welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters coming to you from our home on the Big Island of Hawaii. I am Tim Merriman, your host. I must start by thanking Mark Stoffel on mandolin with Frost on the Pretzel from his Coffee and Cake album. And we're delighted today to have two special guests, Stephanie Watson and Ashley Weiland. And they come to us from Pinellas County, Florida. That's the St. Petersburg area. And we're going to talk about recycling and outreach programs and how interpretation lays over that as a part of their communication strategy. I'm delighted to welcome Ashley Weiland and Stephanie Watson. Stephanie was in a certified interpretive guide course with me and Lisa online uh, through Zoom. And Ashley, I've not met before, but she's also had a CIG course. And I'm going to learn more about that in just a few minutes. Ashley, where do you come from? Where did you grow up? Why, what got you into this work you're doing? Great question. Um, so I'm originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I always joke in my tours, that's a very gloomy, uh, not sunny place. So I escaped to Florida about six years ago. Uh, I moved here in the, to the Tampa area, and now I live in Clearwater, Florida. I live in Pinellas County. Um, but I moved down here because my sister was living down here and she told me she'd let me live in her house for free if I wanted to move. So I moved here because who can pass up free rent? Oh, that's um, great. So I came down here. Yeah, I came down here. Um, I have a bachelor's degree in environmental science. So I've always been very interested in the environment um, for as long as I can remember. Um, and when I moved down here, I volunteered at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. I did that for a while, kind of as something to break up the continuous applying to jobs and things like that. I interned at the Pittsburgh Zoo while I was in college um, doing education and conservation education, things like that. The uh, Florida Aquarium, I also did education. So I've always been very interested in doing outreach education type things. The zoo internship is what sparked my interest in actually doing education. I've always known that I wanted to do environmental stuff. But um, that um, doing my first presentation ever about one of the animals we had was the spark that I needed to realize that I wanted to do um, education. So then when I moved here, I worked for the Department of Health, the state of Florida, for about five years. And then I got this job here at Solid Waste in September of 2021. And what interested me about this is just a lot of the things that I've always been interested in growing up. Um, I'm always an avid recycler, waste reduction. I did things in my own personal life that were very geared towards being more environmentally friendly. And I wanted to educate people about that. I learned very early on when I was in college that education is the foundation for people to understand and make changes and do things. So when I saw this job pop up, that was pretty much you'll educate the public of Pinellas County about recycling and waste reduction. I had to apply and I'm lucky enough to have been chosen and here I am today. So it's a little bit of my background. Very cool. Thank you very much. <laughs> Stephanie, if you would share with us uh, kind of what your background is. How did you get here? Okay. Uh, so, Tim, I have a bachelor's degree in biology uh, from Uni University of South Florida, which is located in Tampa. I also spent a little stint at New College in Sarasota, which is a very cool college if you ever get to check that out. Um, always wanted to work in the environmental field. I grew up watching nature programs as a kid. Um, <laughs> Mutual of Omaha, I don't know if you remember those, but I did hear somewhere that 
watching nature programs as a kid is what really connects you to want to preserve, um, conserve the environment. I think that's very true. I also spent a lot of time playing outdoors as a kid, unsupervised, yay. But um, I think that was a big connection outdoors for me. Much of my career was spent at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection in the regulation of solid waste management facilities, just kind of fell into that as a um, temporary employee, applied for that position and got it, ended up loving it. Definitely recommend that career to folks. There's a lot of reasons, a lot of great people, always stuff to learn. Um, solid waste is a regulatory term, but for the lay person, it means non-hazardous hazardous materials that are discarded. Um, solid waste is not what some people think is domestic waste. It's it's really garbage or discarded items. Um, the district that I worked in at the Florida Department of Environmental Protection had 12 counties. I was an inspector. So I got to go to all those counties on my own, inspect those facilities. Um, they were run by either local governments or private entities. I got to see how they manage waste. I also got to see how waste could be composted, recycled, or reused. And so now I work at a county department responsible for managing um, garbage at our solid waste disposal complex. We operate an integrated solid waste management system, which means that we look at all options to manage garbage as a resource. Um, one of the things that has gotten me passionate about recycling and waste reduction as I think and personally, my lifetime, I've seen the impact of plastic pollution in our environment, um, sort of as evidenced by travel to coastal communities. I remember going to one community maybe 15, 20 years ago, and then I visited it later and the um, beach was, was littered in plastic. And it, it seemed like it happened sort of overnight. And um, yeah, growing up, I saw litter, but it wasn't the type of litter I've seen in the last um, couple decades. So it's rare that I visit a beach now that doesn't have plastic items washed on shore. And I always see plastic tooth flossers in my travels. That's like, it's just sort of to me indicative of how pervasive plastic pollution is. So that's what's got me interested and passionate about recycling and waste reduction. Yeah, I'd like to share just for a moment my connection to this subject, because I was very excited when you both said you would uh, be willing to talk about this. Uh, when I was a young environmental educator at the Southern Illinois University Outdoor Labs, I worked for a guy who told a story that he used to tell students that uh, he wanted them to be goober tills. Uh, Goober till is litter bug spelled backwards. If a litter bug throws it down, then a goober till picks it up. That is so cool. Yeah, I thought that was cute. So I wrote a story for Scott Forsman readers. For those older listeners, that uh, Scott Forsman produced the C. Dick run, C. Jane run, a spot series. They don't exist. I'm told they are not in existence now. But they published my story about Goobertail, and I did it as a puppet play with kids at a state park. And uh, it became kind of a touchstone in all those early years for how do we get people to see the problem of solid waste differently. Now, let's go forward 45 years, and here I am in Hawaii. I jog a road that parallels the ocean, and it goes from about 1,500 feet elevation down to sea lip level and I pick up litter on it and I did do that because I had a dog that ran with me and when she passed on 
I, I thought uh, our other dogs are too small. So what do I do? And, and the answer is I get to slow down and not run so fast if I pick up litter <laughs> and I don't have to look at the litter. And then I started doing daily counts to get an idea of how much I was picking up. 18,000 items a year. And I would say I'm, I'm recycling roughly a third of them. We have a high five program that puts a nickel on every container. And so, but uh, we're a recycling problem in Hawaii because if you want to get rid of a tire, you have to pay, I forget, 16 or $18 because it's got to be shipped back to the mainland, wow. 3,000 miles. And uh, so your subject, I think, is really important. And of course, along the ocean, we see everything from whales being dragging a fisherman's net to sea turtles with a plastic uh, soft drink container binder over their neck. So it's a terrible problem around the ocean. And uh, the ocean is a sink. And I know you know all that, but I want to hear more <laughs> about you. Ashley, tell us kind of... Uh, how your experience as an interpreter has been with this. What, how do you, who, who's your audience? Who are you talking to? Yeah, that's a great question. So we have many different types of audiences. Um, for one thing, our tour program is an approved field trip for Pinellas County schools. So we have a lot of schools come in, um, which obviously children are the future, right? There are future generations. We want them to know what's going on and kind of what, um, they need to do and you know kids have no filter they'll tell their parents straight up that they're doing something wrong so they're our voice that we need in those younger generations so they're one of our bigger audiences children coming in on field trips we just had one yesterday of uh, 80 kids come through and um, learn about our message we have a very big message here in Pinellas County um, similar to Hawaii we are coastal we have a lot of beach and uh, coastal areas on our little tiny county we're a little peninsula as well so we have water on three sides of our county so we don't have a lot of space so uh, children are one of our big audiences um, we get a lot of people in older communities come by as well we are Florida's a big retirement state people like to come here after they're done working they escape their colder climate at homes come down here I understand I did mine a little earlier but I totally get wanting to escape the weather up north but um, people who want to come in who are just interested about how things work in our county where their garbage goes we get a lot of people who are interested in just seeing how things work and we have a very interesting setup kind of here in Pinellas County with how we manage our waste. Um, we have other groups from other counties come in. We have our own county, other departments come in to kind of learn about what a fellow department does here at Pinellas County. They're part of our message as well. The county is part of our message. The residents that live here, they're a big part of us trying to um, get to our goals and reach our visions and things like that. So we're educating anybody and everybody who wants to come and listen. Um, and even people who don't come on a tour, we're educating them through social media posts or um, this podcast will be cool, uh, virtual presentations we have posted, our website. We just came out with a new website in October. So we're using that to make it as the best it can be to educate people. So we have many different audiences, but um, one of our primary ones probably is the students in Pinellas County Schools and um, all the other different groups. A lot of communities come in, different neighborhood communities come in because they wanna learn about how things work. And uh, we happy, we're happy to welcome them because they're a big part of us getting to our goals and things like that. So 
people are very interested too. It's very nice to see people, like-minded people, or people who just hear rumors about recycling or hear things about waste reduction. They're not sure, so they're coming essentially to the source to learn about what actually goes on with recycling and what actually you know goes on with waste reduction and stuff like that. So it's nice to see people come in curious with questions, wanting to learn. Um, so we always welcome that all the time. So how how long would a typical program with school children be? Good question. So we actually, because of CIG and the courses that we all took, we actually just shortened our tour program a little bit um, using a lot of the different things we learned in our certified interpretive guide courses. It used to be a 45 minute classroom presentation and about a 45 minute driving portion where we drive them around our site. We've shortened the classroom portion to be about 20 to 30 minutes. And then the driving is still about 45 minutes. So they drive around, they see all of our different sites. Um, they see where the garbage goes, things like that. So we still a lot about an hour and a half for tour programs because some different groups have a lot of questions. Some are a little bit more quiet. So you never know what you're gonna get. So sometimes the classroom presentation goes a little longer because there's a lot of questions, um, but it's usually around an hour and a half that these people will spend with us when they come for a tour. Wow, that's great. Yeah. Gosh, again, 45, 50 years ago, I was running a program for high school students on an it, it was a general environmental education course. We would bring students from all over Illinois, where I grew up, uh, to Southern Illinois. And one of the places we took them back in those days was the sewage waste treatment plant. And one of the reasons we did was the guy who operated it was a heck of an interpreter. He was amazing in that he, he loved to talk to kids and he made it interesting and he used a lot of colorful language the kids didn't hear at school that we found uh, amusing that they enjoyed that. So uh, he, he essentially called things what they are. And sometimes that's a four letter word at any rate. Uh, so I think it's great that school programming is a big part of what you do. Stephanie, does your job differ from Ashley's? Are you doing the same thing or something um, doing a little bit. I'd say Ashley's on the front lines giving the tours. My role as the manager is more making sure that the tour guides have the tools that they need to, to give the most effective programs. And in fact, um, I've been in this role for seven years. Ashley started 2021 of September. I would say about four months after she started, she approached me and said, I'm interested in taking the certified interpretive guide course. I'm going to take it on my own. And I said, well, what's it all about? And she said, um, to explain it to me. And I said, well, why don't you take it as part of work? And if you find it valuable and you think it would help our team, then maybe we can make it a required course. And she took it and she recommended it. And that year, all four of us got certified. So in 2022, the four-person team, everybody got CIG because um, Ashley recommended it. And so it's so funny because we developed a torch guide training program before we all got certified. And once we <laughs> once we took CIG, we look back at that training program and we're like, yeah, that's gonna have to change because like the part where we scripted the tour was so long it was like that concept of tell the audience everything you know and don't let them say anything I mean that was like where we were going and 
and that's um so it was good because they the tour guides got trained on maybe the traditional way to do it and then they got a cig course and then we got to all tune it together so um, that was really beneficial to spend our time the best way and and train the team now when they start they're going to have a formal training any new person's going to have a formal they're going to be required to take cig course their first you know 12 months so they'll have a basis for not only the material learn the material but how to give it and so i feel really good about that as a manager to be able to provide not just on the job training but a, a formal training by somebody else where you actually are evaluated by a third party and you're and you're you have a rubric and you get you know you might have focus areas and then and then we talk about that and then we kind of look at that so it's it's really supports what what i'm doing is training the team three 24 years ago when lisa and i uh lisa brochu my wife and i were developing for nai the certified interpretive guide course I think our vision was of guides who drove vehicles and took people on tours or interpreters at state parks and national parks. And it's been fascinating to watch how it's in your program, how it's in the master naturalist programs around the country. It's gone a lot of places we didn't expect. But like you, uh, I can go back in my own life when I was first a park interpreter in, oh my gosh, 1972, that's more than 10 years ago, isn't it? I have trouble with math. When I was first a park interpreter, uh, tended to tell people everything. I remember Robert Fudge, a National Park Service interpreter and trainer saying, asking an interpreter a question is like uh, trying to take a sip out of a fire hose we're tempted very often to tell them everything we know right then. And so for me, my first introduction to finding out there was actually a formal field called in interpretation was 1974. I attended my first professional conference and I found out that Freeman Tilden wrote a book in 1957. Uh, it had been around a while, but it hadn't made it to me. I'm a biologist with also a, a teacher certificate and then a, I did a doctorate in speech. And so uh, I've tried to stay in all different parts of the field to learn more about how to do this effectively. What piece of the CIG course has been really most effective for you, Ashley, in making your programming a little better? I've already heard that it shortened the amount of material in the classroom. So what else? Um, probably one of the biggest things um, from CIG that I think all three of us that do the tours um, use a lot is making really good connections um, of our material to the people who are in the tours. You know, we have a lot of technical things that happen here. Our processes have a lot of things that even I didn't understand until I started working here and learning about what it was. But making connections so people understand what you're saying, but also making a connection so that they want to actually do something after they're done with the tour. They don't just go home and say, yeah, I went on a tour today. It was really cool. They go home and the next time they're throwing something in the garbage, they're going to stop and think, you know, I went on that tour of solid waste. Maybe I can do something else with this. So just making the connection to make them have a call of action and want to do something was the biggest thing. Like we were already trying to do that, but the CIG 
um, classes just kind of helped us learn how to do that better and how to do it more efficiently and effectively and learning that we didn't have to do a 45 minute tour of us pretty much word vomiting everything that we had. We have a lot to say here. There's a lot going on here, but it just kind of helped us learn, you know, shortening and just saying the things that need to be said. And Stephanie brought it up as well, leaving them on a high when they're leaving, instead of bombarding them with all of this information, they, you know, hit their high in the middle of it. And then we're still talking. So when they're leaving, they're kind of at a low and they're kind of exhausted. I know after tours, when we were doing those long ones, we would be exhausted because we were just saying all of this stuff, but we want to leave the people who are coming here, the people that we need to, to do something and help make change. We need them to leave on that high and next time they you know think about us they're thinking of good things and all the things that they learned and they they feel like we connected it to them and it wasn't just us preaching at them or saying things to them we included them in the presentation we connected it to them we made it we made it i don't know the good word we i guess connection is the good word but we made it so that when they're thinking about it, it affects them. It wasn't just like, here's an issue that we're facing in Pinellas County. This is what's happening to our landfill. This is what's happening here. We made it so that they would care more. Like, this is how it's gonna affect you. You know, we live here in Pinellas. Pinellas is a beautiful place. We wanna keep it that way. This is how we're gonna do that. So just finding those, those, those. Um, I believe it was the intangibles, if I'm not, if I'm mis not mistaken, those things that help connect and make them care about our message. Cause we care about our message. We work here. We care a lot about it, but you know, some people might look at our landfill and just kind of be like, oh, I don't really care, but that affects you. The landfill is going to affect you. It filling up is going to affect you. This is how. So those were the big things with CIG that helped me and helps my, my, my team and all of us give really good, efficient tours because we want people to leave with a call to action saying, I got to do something. I got to help. I got to help Ashley out. I just talked to her for 30 minutes. I need to do something to help them out. So that's the biggest thing I think from CIG that helped us. Well, I've heard you say that it, you were making it relevant for them. That's one of Tilden's principles. Uh, I can tell you that I, for the first in this podcast series, I interviewed Dr. Sam Ham, an old friend and a colleague and a guy who very quickly tells you that your objective and interpretation should be to get people to think, to think more deeply about their lives and what they do. And you're doing that. And then the other part is provoke further thought and action. I mean, when you can give people something real in their lives, they can do at home on their own. That's, uh, that's a critical uh, piece. And then that also can end up being measurable. I, this is where I want to take it to Stephanie for a question. As a program manager, do you see impact in your program through better interpretation? Do you do you feel like it's going to measure out in how the solid waste management program works? Yeah, I'll give you a little background on that. So we do feedback surveys um, for tour participants and, and presentation, but right now what we're doing is tour and it tries to measure behavior change. And as we learned in interpretation uh, and CIG, it's, that's a little bit of a high expectation to think that someone's going to change their behavior based on spending an hour with you. So I think maybe we our expectations are a little bit different for audiences, but our questions are, do you better understand? And then four, four questions. And what I'm seeing in those surveys, because we were we always got good feedback 
um, from all of our employees because we did a good job of explaining what we do. But now what I'm seeing is comments from tour participants with more superlatives, more exclamation, more emotion, more description of, of how good of an experience it was. So I think we're giving them a better experience. And if I can measure that, it's how they're describing it. So, and they're using the tour guides names more, which told me that they're, I mean, they wear name tags, but feedback surveys before CIG wasn't really saying people's names. It was, it was like 20% of the time and now it's more often, but it's really, I think, showing and the connection and the um, specific feedback, like you really connected with our students, things like that. Um, that's kind of what I'm seeing as far as uh, impact. And also the team is working hard at and talking to each other about, I thought about this way to connect that topic with the audience and they're sharing ideas. And then it's sort of rippling, like multiplying through because then they're learning from each other and then become more effective because they're sharing those ideas because they're all coming from the same interpretive techniques. I think that's great. When we do whatever we do in interpretation, well, we start a conversation with our public. It's not us talking, or as you mentioned, Ashley, preaching, uh, which I think doesn't work well. I, I think when you tell people what to think, they begin to tune you out you aren't necessarily the expert in their life that they want to follow your lead on whatever you suggest. But when you uh, do it through conversation, through asking questions, through getting them to think more deeply about what they're doing, it has impact. I know the funny thing for me, running down the road with a plastic bag in my hand is I have people slow down their car, roll down the window and yell mahalo, which is thank you in Hawaiian. I had a guy stop and hand a jar of honey to me and say, man, I really appreciate what you do. Uh, I had a guy behind me at Ace Hardware. I was buying about $80 worth of farm equipment. And he handed his credit card to the person at the register and said, please uh, pay for his materials with my card. And I said, oh, no, I, I can afford to buy this. He said, no. He said, I see what you do every day. He said, it, you know, your community uh, begins to see effort and we affect each other. Ashley, do you have classrooms that actually uh, communicate back with you, send you uh, pictures or stories of what they do? Because kids very often like to do that. Do you hear from any of your constituents? That's a good question. I don't know since I've started if we've really gotten anything um, back from them. We are actually working on developing some resources for other grades that we're going to put on our website. So we're hoping to hear back from classes once we have those up there for um, programs. We have an age limit for our tours, um, third grade and up, eight, eight and up. So we're developing resources that uh, kindergartners and through second grade can utilize as well. So they can get some information about garbage and recycling. And we're hoping that we get some feedback from educators and teachers on that. As far as after the tour, um, we always give them our email address. And I always try to say, if you guys think of anything cool or a cool way to reuse something, or you guys do a project, like email me or email us. We love to hear those stories, but I don't think we've gotten anything back just yet. Um, but we did uh, kind of just start 
using the CIG thing. So maybe, you know, as the months go on and the year goes on, we'll get more um, things from them. But I know students are really excited. They gave a lot of great examples. During the tour, we asked them for examples of how they reuse, reuse things. And they have really cool ideas and really cool projects that they work on in school at home. So maybe they'll start sending those to us later. Maybe they'll say, hey, tell Miss Ashley that we're doing this in class or something and they'll send us an email because that would be really cool. We would love to see that kind of stuff, but not yet since we've started using those uh, CIG aspects, but hopefully we do. That'd be I awesome. Would, there are programs that use this as a feedback loop where you invite the students, if they send you uh, pictures or examples from their school of their reducing uh, waste or of cleaning up an area that you'll send them each a patch or something. I Sometimes it's hard to afford, you know, a t-shirt for every child or that sort of thing. But if you can, on the other hand, there's that fun thing. When I was at a nature center in Pueblo, Colorado for 13 years, we very often got the local bank, the Pepsi or Coca-Cola distributor, the uh, other company that has an interest in what the public thinks or does to pay for something that we could do with the kids. And so uh, if you can figure out those feedback loops that actually give you measurable feedback in a uh, form that you can turn around and share with other schools and turn around and share through your social media, that's kind of a fun thing to do. I don't know. I, I love I that idea. Yeah, I like that. I'm writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> well, as a, as a program manager, Stephanie, you say you have... Uh, four of you in your department, is that correct? Yes. How how many people do you contact in a year? What kind of size audience do you reach? Um, I would say that it's changed since the pandemic because we were tourists oh, yeah. during the pandemic. So it's gone from anywhere from like 10,000 to 3,000. Oh, yeah. Um, and right now it's probably a little lower than it than it has been in the past, but we're building back up. Have you used videos on your website or anything like that as a way of kind of extending your reach? Yes. Um, in fact, Ashley and another team member just did a presentation that we put on um, online as far as, um, well, we, we have a, we don't want to spoil it, but we have a, um, virtual tour that we're working on right now. So you're going to be able to look at a um, aerial of our site. So we operate a waste energy facility and a landfill and other facilities. And you'll be able to look at the whole site and then zoom in on that specific area and then be able to take a 360 look around. So if you can't come to our site or you're just curious about it, you'll be able to visit virtually. It's kind of patterned after like college tours, virtual college tours that really took off during the pandemic when people couldn't visit prospective colleges, they um, they could visit virtually. So that's in the works and probably going to be um, done by the summer. Anything we do that reaches out, you know, I remember having little discussions with other interpreters when Steve Irwin was alive and was the crocodile hunter on TV. Uh, Marlon Perkins of Wild Kingdom. Uh, now, you're not old enough, Stephanie, to remember Marlon Perkins, but uh, the Wild Kingdom show back in the 50s and 60s and 70s, early 70s, was Marlon Perkins, the 
uh, director of the St. Louis Zoo, and before that, a zoo in Chicago, Lincoln Park. And he, to me, was fascinating. It was a role model. I watched his show, and I got very excited. And then Steve Irwin came along and did the same thing. And I think sometimes when we reach people through TV or radio or music or whatever, it sets them up for another experience. It may not be the thing that gets them to think more deeply about what we want them to think about, but it's a start. And uh, so. And our, we are exploring podcasts too. Um, we're kind of doing a deep dive of our current social media accounts and who's being reached and, and the type of messaging that lands. And we are looking at podcasts and, and, um, that's one of the reasons that Ashley and I were really interested too, because they posed our communications team posed the um, question of what does Pinellas County sound like. So if you were to explain to your residents what you do and 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 how you do it, what is that? Because it's it's all audio. So that's really interesting to think about. I uh, was attending many years ago a meeting in uh, St. George, Utah, of uh, with Aramark, who's a big vendor with National Park Service. They have, they manage many of the hotels and their food services and that sort of thing. And they had someone there from Ecolab and uh, the, and they make maintenance products. And one of the things he did is he, he held up a five gallon bucket of some sort of detergent. He said, this was our, our kitchen detergent uh, that we sold to restaurants. He's, then he held up a little block about that big, and he said, this is what we have now. Uh, I'm holding up my hands like you can see it over the the podcast, and you really can't. But it was about a six-inch cube that had replaced a five-gallon bucket. And he made the point that if we can minimize the packaging and maintenance supplies, if we can get rid of some of the big items that show up in the landfills, or that last an incredibly long time. I, I, what are some of the things that just last forever? Everything lasts forever in a landfill. I mean, landfills are forever and they're anaerobic, meaning there's no oxygen in landfills. So there's no oxygen to break down materials. So they decompose, but not the way they would in, um, and not everything's meant to decompose. So um, that's why landfills, like according to the EPA's Environment Protection Agency's um, waste management hierarchy, that's why it's the least preferred way to manage waste because they, it just doesn't go away. And when landfills are full, you have to manage them. In Florida, it's 30 years, but it really is much longer than that because you have to monitor the, the surface and groundwater and possibly landfill gas. I was going to say they're methane producers, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to have so much waste dis disposed before they'll reach, you know, threshold to be monitored, but they are forever. Oh, wow. I was fascinated. Uh, I used to work for Tennessee Valley Authority at Land Between the Lakes in Kentucky. And they, as a manager, they sent me down to Huntsville, Alabama, where they were doing uh, research on a lot of this. And they were actually... Uh, isolating fungi and bacteria from the hot mineral springs of Yellowstone and testing them on their ability to decompose plastics and uh, PCBs, 
uh, I don't even remember what that stands for anymore, polycarbonate products, I think. And point being that very often um, in other forms of waste management, we have to dig up soil that's been contaminated and then figure out where to put it. Does, does your land, does your program have to deal with that sort of thing with toxic waste? Um, no, because the solid waste is um, the category, the regulatory category of solid waste is non-hazardous. So anything that's been deemed hazardous and there's categories of hazards is not supposed to be in a municipal solid waste landfill is what we operate. Now that doesn't necessarily include how you may have heard the discussions about PFAS and PFAS, um, the forever chemicals. Um, right. They're chemicals that are used to make things waterproof. They're in a lot of things. They're in um, markers, raincoats, pots and pans. And um, EPA is looking at how to regulate those chemicals right now because they're just so pervasive and they don't break down. So that's a hot topic in the regulatory world right now because um, wastewater treatment facilities and solid waste management facilities are going to have to look at how to manage them. Um, and, and, you know, maybe at some point how products are made, you know, I'm sure that'll be part of the discussion. Wow. Yeah, I uh, remember for the last 40 years, 50 years, they've been discussing how do we get uh, the broader industrial community to recognize the impact they have cradle to grave when they're producing a product, not just what the product is when they put it on the shelf. The same professor that it interested me in the idea of being a goober tail would bring in a Wheaties box and a full-size Wheaties cereal box. And then he would bring in one that contained the same amount of product in a cube. And in doing so, he would make the point that if we did nothing but require manufacturers who box things to use cubes instead of flattened containers, that we would save 37% of the materials that, and it, it's been a long time since I heard the story, so it may have been 35 or 32 or whatever, but mm -hmm. uh, point being, we actually don't manage how people package things, do we, very well? Well, California just passed like sweeping uh, legislation on EPR. It's um, basically extended producer responsibility. So okay. um, there's a, they passed a law that... It, EPR is a policy approach to shifting the responsibility from um, municipalities like us to manage waste or discarded items of whatever's produced to the producer with the end in mind. So when you're making a package, is it made from recycled content? Is it recyclable? Uh, could I have reduced a little bit more waste here if it's an electronic maybe take back programs for those electronics. And the, even though it's only state legislation, this will be interesting because companies that are required to comply with California's law probably produce items that are shipped and sold in other states. So there may be like a positive trickle down. I'm waiting to see that, but the positive trickle down effect on um, the effect it has on packaging and recycling, if 
you know, companies are doing business in California, it's they're crossing state lines. So that'll be really interesting to see develop. Yeah. You know, as a kid, I I really hearing what you said was your early experience. I was out in a creek every day trying to catch crawdads or uh, but one of our favorite things in order to have a, an aquarium at home with fish or a turtle or whatever is we would go out and pick up Coke bottles. There was a two cent deposit in the 1950s on Coke bottles. So uh, with 24 Coke bottles, we had 48 cents. That translated into nine candy bars, 10 Cokes. Coke was a nickel. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, an aquarium was maybe $2. So, and, and oh, by the way, even back then, though, they were worth two cents, people threw them out the window. And it's always disturbed me that our, our high five program in Hawaii is for a nickel. If you translate just inflation, that two cent deposit, it should be 50 cents now per container as a deposit to get people to really value it. And uh, we don't have, we don't get it done because there's a lot of lobbyists that keep our laws from being as effective as they could be. I, I want to back up a little bit. Uh, Ashley, kind of who's your favorite audience to talk to? Who do you like to get with and hopefully light them up? Yeah, that's a good question. I would have to say I love doing the school field trips, um, probably the younger elementary age. Um, students and kids, they have a really good energy about them. They're really excited. Um, they have a good time. They have fun. They interact. They ask really good questions. It's always fun to have a, a younger group come in. Yesterday's group was third grade. You know, people don't think that third, you know, some third graders aren't as advanced, I guess. You know, they're younger, but they have such excellent questions and they're they're super smart. And it's really cool to have them come in and have discussions with them. And it's really fun to kind of morph our general presentation into a presentation that students that are that young would like and listen to and be interested in. But I really do enjoy the elementary aged children and doing presentations for them. They have, they excite me, their energy, you know, I feel their energy, so I'm excited and it's just a really good time. And it's really fun to just to see the kind of questions they think of, because like I said before, kids don't have filters, they'll ask and say whatever's on their mind. And that's what we need, especially in the environmental world. We need people like that, stewards like that, who won't be afraid to tell their parents, mom, you're making a lot of waste. We need to figure something out. So, um, but they're, they're just fun to see what they come up with and the questions they ask and the answers they give, they listen and they respond and they're listening and they're answering the questions that we have for them um, and playing the, you know, the games that we make up for them trying to pick out stuff in the garbage that maybe didn't have to go there. It could have been recycled or could have been used or something like that. But that's probably my favorite audience. There's the elementary aged kids for sure. Yeah. You know, I, it takes me back just what you said. My son, uh, I raised from age three onward as a single dad. And I remember it like four years old, uh, we were in the car and I didn't put my seatbelt on. This is back when seatbelts were fairly new and not everybody was putting them on. And he said, don't go anywhere. He says, put your seatbelt on. He was in a Montessori yeah. school, which are pretty progressive. And uh, somewhere he had gotten the message that seatbelt had to be on. 
And he was he was not happy with me driving the car without it. So when we t get kids involved, that message, they actually influence their parents. Uh, I'm going to share they one do. other little quick story. I got a gentleman named Josh Barkin, who is chief naturalist at East Bay Regional Park District in California, used to lead supermarket tours. And in the supermarket tours, he would do such things as point out products that came from 17 or 18 different countries that had a tremendous waste stream because of how they were produced. Things like Whole Foods didn't exist back then, these ultra interesting food stores that actually get into how they source their materials. I always wonder, Josh was way out in front of a lot of us. Uh, his other common tour was he in the gutter with Bark and he would lead people down the gutters of a city and talk about where things go, that there is no such place as a way. Things don't really go away. Again, part of your message. Yeah, that's the name of our tour. Really? <laughs> that's, that's the title of our tour. No such place as a way. Yeah. So we call it. <laughs> well, Steve Van Meter. It does, there isn't a way it's, it's here, but yeah. Steve Van Meter, who wrote the books, acclimatization and acclimatizing back in the seventies, really punched that message. He had been a camp director and actually put a label around the drains in the camp that he ran that said, there is no such place as a way or things going down here will not go away. But he wanted to make the point, you don't take gasoline or paint and dump them down a drain and think you've, you've gotten rid of it. Is there anything in your programming that you think is uh, likely to change a lot in the next few years? I mean, the pandemic we think is over, or at least isn't as extreme as it was. Is there something you want to get into in your interpretation of solid waste and recycling and reuse uh, that you think will make it reach out even further? Yeah, I think um, prior to the pandemic, I think we, I wasn't working here prior to the pandemic, but I think prior to the pandemic, they would do a lot of different outreach events, they would go off site and go to, you know, green fests or other events that cities or places were putting on, we would go and kind of have a booth there, table there, tabling events, I guess they're called. So that was kind of a way to put ourselves in those areas where, you know, all these different people were coming to maybe people we wouldn't usually someone who might not usually come on a tour, we can get more tour participants or just educate in a different space. So I think we're going to start trying to get into those again now that the pandemic is kind of um, not as extreme as it was or it's slowing down a little bit. We're looking into kind of starting those up again. So going back to events and doing tabling events, we just got a super cool tablecloth design. Looks real cool. So we're excited to use that. Um, but I know that that's something that they used to do prior to this pandemic, prior to me working here and something that I think we want to get into again and kind of having education in different spots around the county and educating people who might not even know that we exist or know that we give tours. Um, I know in the CIG class, people were kind of like, oh, you, you work at a solid waste facility? And I'm like, yeah, we do tons of tours. They're like, people want to tour that? And I'm like, people are pumped to come here. They want to come here. So um, sometimes people don't even know that we give tours or we have that available to them and they're excited and they want to come. So I think that's one thing. Um, Stephanie, I don't know if you have other things that we're kind of looking at as our program manager, you always have really good ideas on stuff oh. that we're trying to get into. So. <laughs> Thank you. I would yeah. say um, one of the challenges that we're facing now, uh, we're hearing more from residents is they they don't see the value of recycling programs. I mean, in waste, we have a waste energy facility 
So waste energy is not recycling. It's energy recovery and it's below recycling on, on the most preferred way to manage waste. So it's not as good as recycling. Recycling um, saves products from being, you know, they're put back into production and reused. So you're saving all those, you know, mining um, virgin materials and so forth. Um, but but some of the things that have happened the last couple of years with recycling have kind of shaken people's confidence in the programs. And especially we're in a highly urban area of a million residents and we have like 15 to 20 million overnight visitors. Um, so kind of restoring confidence in recycling programs and also standardization of programs. You can go in a community like ours with 24 cities and um, unincorporated areas and you have a lot of different labeling and things. So to reduce community um, confusion, um, standardization is definitely a way that we're trying to move um, and maybe getting a little bit more um, kind of rules about that because it's, um, you know, putting things into place that a little bit um, give a little bit more guidance about about recycling. So that's going to change. And also we're looking at other programs to increase recycling rates like um, composting, C&D recycling. And when I say C&D, I mean construction and demolition debris. Um, those are, you know, construction, demolition debris, drywall, um, lumber, uh, concrete, anything generated when you build um, or demolish a building. And um, that constitutes like 20% of what comes into our facility. So looking to get some, um, maybe some programs or some interest in, in reusing some of those those good materials. Uh, we have a 30-year master plan with a vision of zero waste to landfill. Wow. And we that doesn't mean that we're going to stop making waste. It means we want to stop sending waste to landfill. We're not right. saying that it's not going to go to waste to energy, but we have um, strategies to reach that vision and putting some of those those plans into place and, and some new programs is what's on the horizon for us. Do you have a green waste program? Do you have a composting program? We have a yard waste to mulch processing program. Okay. Uh, we have 24 cities, about half of the cities have separate collection for yard waste. So we do have some yard waste coming into our disposal facility. And that's some of the things we point out on our tours to tour participants of could that yard waste have gone to a program to be turned into mulch to be reused? So that would be a good um, a good opportunity for us to not send it for disposal or, or burn it. It's been an important one here. Uh, tropical places, and you live in a place that is a much warmer climate. Things grow most of the year. I mean, we, we're in the dead of winter here in uh Hawaii, and we have actually on our property one tree that drops its leaves. The other 500 trees on our property keeps them year-round, and we we grow tomatoes in dead of winter. But the other side of that is we pr produce tremendous amounts of green waste, and our uh, county actually has a really nice collection program, and they they do compost it and then chop it up and we're allowed to go pick up truckloads of it for free to use as mulch. Yeah. Is there anything we've not talked about that you would hope we would touch on? I, I have something unless Ashley you wanted to go. Oh no, I yeah, go go for it. Um I'd say that 
so when I took the certified interpretive uh, guide course, um, I came back to the de my department and I gave a little talk on interpretive techniques. I would say that interpretive techniques are, they can be used throughout your kind of personal and professional career to engage your audiences. I, I don't necessarily think you have to be like a run a program, interpretive program, because so many of these things you think about like Maslow, um, taking the Maslow, taking care of people's needs so that they can focus and concentrate is really huge. You know, letting people know when they can ask questions, um, how you're going to take their questions and, and, and not, and, and giving the opportunity for it to be a conversation if the opportunity allows and not be a lecture is really, really important. Um, and I will say, Tim, the, you made the biggest impact on me when I took your course, <laughs> when you did your 10 minute program and I didn't know what to expect. And you did your talk about eagles and how eagles have kind of come back from their population being decimated and how you know, conservation is key and they're symbol of America. And you started in like the first couple minutes by asking, I lost track of how many questions, showing pictures. I was kind of blown away. Like, I just thought it was going to be like where you talked and then you ended up asking the audience questions. And I thought back of all the interpretive programs I'd probably gone to at zoos and aquariums and parks since growing up. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's what they do in interpretive programs. They ask you, so you get engaged, so you feel like you're a part of it. Um, and that, but that kind of surprised me because that's not necessarily what we were doing. We were we were talking for a while, and so I was like, okay, I'm gonna when I do my program for ten minutes to get my certification myself to do that. Um, uh, what did you call it? That little diagram where you do your tangible and your intangible and then you, right. you just follow it. And, um, and then you can use that anytime you do your talk and you don't have to memorize it or anything. And sure. I was like, I'm gonna try that. But I, uh, it was, I guess I felt like taking CIG to me was it like challenged me to learn and think in a different way. And I was really, I guess, proud of myself that I, was able to think in a different way and challenge myself and do it. And I, in my point in my career, I was just glad for that opportunity to learn something new. So I recommend the course to anybody that speaks on a regular to audiences and wants um, to learn a new way to get audiences to, to pick up what you're putting down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I I think your comment is right on. I can tell you that there's an international uh, organization for people who manage monuments and world heritage sites that have gone to calling, guiding, presentation. And I think it's an unfortunate choice of words just because uh, a better choice, if you want to use a very common word, would be conversation. Uh, if they don't want to use the word interpretation. But when when you say presentation, to me, it sounds like you're going to lecture. You've heard me say it. I think the worst interpretive programs ever been to were lectures. If we want people mm -hmm. to think, we ask them questions and they begin to turn it in their own mind. And as uh, Sam Ham points out, people are making meanings for themselves. They are trying to figure out how it relates to their lives. So thank you for all you do. I think we're going to 
tie this up, but I would tell you, Ashley, uh, you've done an amazing thing in bringing the CIG program to your entire program. First of all, it, uh, you were supported in getting to that because the very first professional development things I did in my career, I paid for out of my pocket. And I did it because I wanted to be better at what I did. But good programs support their staff in getting improved training opportunities and better skills and techniques and things of that sort. So, so Stephanie, thanks for being the kind of manager that sees the value in what your staff brings to you and, and making it available to everyone. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, well, thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> I'm very great. I'm very grateful to have a workplace that supports that because I was very willing to pay for it out of pocket and do it myself. But um, I have a good workplace, a good I work for a good place. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you, Pinellas County. Yeah, thanks, Pinellas County. <laughs> well, I I've enjoyed meeting you uh, very much, Ashley. I think you're a great example of how we change the world. People who are passionate about what they do. And uh, thank you, Stephanie, for being a manager who supports all of this. And I look forward to one day you stopping by our farm on the big island of Hawaii. So and if, thank you. If I get to St. Pete, I'm going to come on a tour up. here. Yeah. Uh, eco eco tourism. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, it was aloha. great meeting you too, Tim. Uh, likewise. Oh, thank aloha. you. Aloha. Aloha. Yeah. Well, I want to thank Stephanie and Ashley for joining me on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I've enjoyed our conversation, and I look forward next Friday morning to talk with Dr. Chris Mayer, Professor of Ecotourism and Interpretation at Ferrum College in Virginia. Chris is an old friend, and he had an unusual journey in his work with the Peace Corps, so I think you'll enjoy learning more about that. Thanks also to Mark Stoffel, who has provided his beautiful mandolin music to the beginning and end of each of our broadcasts. So right now, a little more frost on the pretzel. Mark Stone.